0: In this episode of Desert Island Torah, we have the Zechut of speaking to Rabbanit Miriam White. Originally from West Hempstead, New York, and now in Jerusalem, Miriam has been involved in formal and informal education for the past 15 years. She previously served as the Director of Religious Guidance at Central Yeshiva University High School for Girls and taught various classes in Tanakh, Makshava, and Tefillah. Miriam received her BA from Stern College and Master of Science at Eli. She studied at the Bellows Eshkolot Educators Institute for Tanakh and Jewish Studies at Matan. Thank you so much, Miriam, for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure.
0: So it's Desert Island Torah, three pieces of Torah that you would take to a desert island. What do they mean to you? Why are they so important to you? Really looking forward to learning and finding out your three pieces. So if we jump right in, should we go with your first piece?
1: Okay, thank you so so much. Um, so I uh, came upon this piece um, from Ruth Rabbah. It's a uh, midrash uh, that I absolutely fell in love with. Um, I'll explain it and I'll explain why you know this piece means so much to me and uh, and why I would take it with me wherever I go. Um, so the midrash in Ruth Rabbah says as follows: Amar Rabbi Yitzchak bar Marion. Um, Rabbi Yitzchak bar Marion says, The sukkim come to teach us, mitzvah, That if a person comes to do a mitzvah, he should do it with his full heart. And then the Midrash uh, goes on to give us some examples um, of people who didn't do something wholeheartedly. So it says, Shalu um, haya reuven, um, that if Reuven, at the time, Yodea would have known Shakadish HaKadosh Baruch Hu, would be writing about him in the Torah, then he would have acted differently. So it quotes from Breshit when it mentions Reuven um, being involved in the selling of Yosef. Reuven that Ruvain heard that the brothers wanted to kill Yosef. And instead of going along with the plot, he suggested, no, let's see. And, you know, why don't we throw him in a pit and decide what to do with him? Um, And he tried to save him to that regard, but he didn't finish the deal. As we all know, Yosef was in the pit and then eventually got sold into slavery. Um, But had he known that the Torah would have been written you know, writing his story, and he would have been known in the Torah to do this, it says, He would have put Yosef on his shoulders, and he would have ran him back to his father. Um, so definitely something so perplexing, so interesting that, you know, had Ruve known that he would have gotten all this, you know, fanfare for what he what he could have done, he would have done things differently. So the Midrash continues, and it says, And it says, that also another, you know, personality in Torah, if Aaron Hakoid would have known, would have written about him in the Torah, the way that it's written in that Aaron found out his brother Moshe was, you know, um, asked to be the leader of Am Israel and he went out to the desert to greet him, he would have acted differently. How would he act differently? Uh, with with drums and with instruments he would have come out to go greet his brother you know he just went out to greet his brother to say you know yashir koach mazel tov on your new position but had he known the torah would have written about him then he would have done it with a whole band and with music instruments and he would have made a bigger deal and then the midrash says that if boaz would have known that he would be written about in the Torah and that his story would have been preserved for all of time, right? So what would he have done? So it says in the Pasuk that he gave Ruth the amount of food that was necessary for her, for Nami, but had he known that the Torah would have been writing about him, it says, he would have filled up wagons and wagons and wagons filled with food to send back to her and to um, Nami. And, uh, you know, seems very, you know, very interesting that uh, the Midrash, you know, says this. So before I explain why this Midrash means so much to me, the Midrash concludes with something that I think is absolutely um, fantastic and something that, you know, I think about constantly. Um, and, and it says, L'sha'avar haya adam so what happens today when a person does a mitzvah? What happens in our lives when, when people are doing mitzvahs and living their lives uh, filled with Torah and mitzvahs? Hanavi kotva, that the Navi is writing it, referring to Eliyahu navi, right? Or back then, that's what, you know, used to take place. Keshe ha-mitzvah, right? Who is doing it? Eliyahu kotva. Eliyahu is writing all the mitzvahs that we are doing. Umelech ha-Mashiach, and when a Mashiach will come... Hakadosh Baruch Hu Chotem Al yidehem. That almost Mashiach and Hakadosh Baruch will seal all the mitzvot and all the things that people are doing today, and will seal it almost like in a in a new book, or seal it um, in in new stories for us to learn. Um, and uh, that's how you know the midrash uh, concludes. So um, I heard this midrash. I remember learning it originally from uh, Rav Azaria uh, Burzan. Um, and, uh, it stuck with me. I think the first time I heard it was when I was 18 years old. And I remember thinking to myself, when I first heard the Midrash, my initial response was, this doesn't make any sense. Like if the personalities of Reuve and Aharo and Boaz would have known that they would have gotten the credit in the Torah for, you know, what they, what they did, they would have done things differently. It almost seems like, you know they would have acted differently knowing that they would get you know all the fanfare and that they would get all the prestige so how could it be that this is something you know is this negative is this a positive Madrash? what's Madrash really trying to really trying to say um and i'm sure there's a lot of different ways to interpret it but uh the 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 way that it meant so much to me when i was 18 and something that i can you can you know constantly still think about is the idea as follows, which is that each of these personalities, Reuven, Aharon, and Boaz, are almost in a crossroads in their life where there's something very different about to transpire, and they have to decide whether they're going to fully commit to seeing the action through, or they're going to play it safe and kind of do the right thing, but leave it open, perhaps, for you know, if they're wrong, or if it doesn't work out for something else to to transpire. And I, you know, thought to myself, you know, Reuven, he has to, he has to come up against his brothers, he knows it's wrong to sell Yosef, he knows that, you know, this is the wrong thing to do, he should be running back to his father, you know, with his, uh, you know, with his brother on his shoulders. But he doesn't. Why? Because he hesitates. He says, you know, what are my brothers going to think of me? How is it possible that, you know, I'm the only one that's thinking this way? Why don't my brother see eye to eye with me? What am I missing? And he starts to doubt himself. He he really thinks, like, maybe, you know, maybe there's another way of looking at it. Even though deep down inside, he knows the right thing to do is to return his brother. And the same thing with Aaron. Aaron also is at a crossroads. He was the leader of Am Yisrael and Mitzrayim at the time. And all of a sudden, his brother, who was estranged, you know that he he hadn't been part of the family. He grew up in the palace. Now he's coming back, and he's bringing the word of Hashem. Do you trust this guy? Do you do you fully support? Do you fully support him, even on a personal level? Right. It takes a lot of um, you know relinquishing one's ego to a certain extent. That you know here he was the leader of Am Yisrael. Now he'd have to share the podium, so to speak, with his brother Moshe. You know he's not so sure. He wants to give Moshe a shot. He wants to try. But he's not sure. Do you know? Do I accept Moshe fully and and bring him into his position and Boaz as well? Boaz is a man of chesed, a man of kindness, and he meets you know this Moaviah who is complicated. Comes with Naomi after you know marrying one of her sons, intermarriage um we know that Moab and Amisrael have difficult relations and all of a sudden Boaz sees that you know she's in need he wants to help because he's a kind-hearted individual but what is it going to look like what are people going to say that he's helping a Moabiyah? what if people were against the original marriage of uh, herself to Naomi's son you know this this is complicated and so each of these characters sh- sort of play it safe and the way that i understood the midrash um, is that had they known that the Torah would have written about their actions and they would have done things differently really means is had they had the confidence that they're doing the right thing and that this was going to be sealed for all of time They would have thrown themselves into it 100 percent that they would have said to themselves You know what? I'm not playing it safe. I know that there's what to risk here. I know that it's not so clear-cut but I'm going for it full-heartedly and I'm going to see it through a hundred percent. And it almost made me think to myself that, you know, how many times in our lives do we have choices? Do we have um, situations where deep down inside, we, we almost know what the right thing to do is, but we want to play it safe. We're, we're not so sure. So, you know, we kind of test the waters or we, you know, we, we sort of inch towards the right thing, but we won't, you know, throw ourselves fully into something. And, um, you know, this midrash to me just signifies, as it says in its opening line, right? It teaches mitzvah that every time we do something, we have to put ourselves 100%. You know, when we um, go to do a chesed, when we go to fulfill a mitzvah, when we involve ourselves in our Torah learning, you know, it's always a question what's the balance? How much. But in the moment when we're doing it, we really have to do it 100%. So much so, as the Midrash concludes, what happens when a person does a mitzvah today? What you know, what ends up happening? So it says that Eliyahu is writing um, our story. And it almost empowers us that we have to think to ourselves, just like Reuve and Aaron and Boaz, what if my life and my actions and the choices that I make in my life are being recorded and one day will be part of this I don't want to say a new Tanakh, but of this book that's being compiled, as it says, with the Melech HaMashiach and, and HaKadosh Baruch who's sealing it in the end of days. What if my story is is going to be something that's going to be preserved uh, for the future generations? And you think to yourself, have I thrown myself into whatever it is that I'm doing fully, wholeheartedly? Uh, am I Am I doing it to the utmost that I possibly can? Um, and I love this piece of Torah, because it just changes the way that you, you know, think about um, serving Hashem, doing mitzvahs, learning Torah. Am I maximizing? Um, or is there something holding me back? You know, and had I just have a, had a little bit of confidence, you know, that confidence of like, almost HaKadosh Baruch saying, you're doing the right thing. I'm going to write about this in the future, and people are going to learn about this. Oh, then you feel reassured. Um and although we don't have that in our lives to know for sure whether we're doing the right thing a hundred percent, or you know, we know, you know, we know certainly that you know this is the right path to choose. Um, I do think it's um, beyond remarkable that we have this piece of Torah that tells us that you know, if we do things with confidence and we do things wholeheartedly, um, then you know, we can we can move forward. We can do things. Um, that who knows, maybe will be preserved um, for a future time and for future generations. And it empowers us to make the decisions in our lives, the you know, those decisions and maximize them to 100% to, to go to the um, highest degree of Avodah Hashem. So for me, this is like a piece that I think about all the time and, and something yeah. that, you know, whatever situation I'm in, um, when I doubt myself, when I doubt, you know, a potential, you know, a uh, choice, you know, I say, no, I'm going to do it in, you know, hundred percent. I'm going to do it um, wholeheartedly. Um, and, um, and I think that, you know, these, uh, you know, heroes of mine, Reuven, Aaron and Boaz, um, even though the Midrash kind of says that, you know, they could have done a little bit more, th- those become my heroes of understanding that, you know, I learned from them and I learned from the fact that, you know, if if I really want to give it my all, I have to think in a way that, you know, my actions matter, my actions uh, can have an effect um, in the future. So I, I love that piece.
0: That's a great choice. Um, one of the reasons why we started this podcast was to find um, gems of Torah like that, <laughs> where people can really learn gems like that that have such a deep incredible meaning to them um with such great messages and I think it also teaches us a lot about our place um in the world where we are in terms of you know we're living on 2000 years later but we're still kind of part of that um journey um of the Tanakh and yeah it's a great choice thank you so much for sharing
1: no no problem yeah my pleasure yeah def- definitely continues that link that link that uh you know Tanakh is not just history but it's uh almost like an ongoing process
0: Absolutely. So, should we go with your second piece?
1: Yes. So, um, I, I happen to love um, various different parts of Nach, uh, but this is probably um, a piece of uh, of of Navi uh, that personally I believe, as an educator, um, all educators should learn, um, and it's definitely uh, reshaped uh, the way that I approach education, and um, perhaps even. Um, you know, learning um, and and teaching. So, so this is something that's that's extremely meaningful to me personally, but also um, in terms of my career as a teacher, I feel like all educators should uh, should really study this piece again and again and again. Um, so, uh, this comes from Malachim um, Aleph with the stories of Eliyahu uh, Navi in um Yudchet and Tet. and just to give a little bit of the context. Of Parak and really the piece I want to bring in is the the later Parak paracutet The context is is that you know um, many of the Neviim of Hashem have been persecuted by the evil king um, Ahab and his evil wife um, Isabel uh, They've murdered many many prophets who stand by Hashem and His Torah, um, and the you know religion that they want to spread uh, for Am Yisrael is really following idol worship of the Baal. And uh, you know, Eliyahu is constantly um, dealing with this and having to uh, come up against um, so m- many of B'nai Israel who have become swept up in this I- you know, idea of Baal and service of the idols um, that he's he's really losing um, you know ideas as to how to bring the people back to Hashem. And his job as the navi is to reprimand the people and to bring them back to the place that uh, that they should be. Um, And ultimately, he uh, wants to have a showdown with um, the king. And he bumps into one of the Nevi'im, who is still connected to um, Ahav and Izabel, Ovadia. And he says, go invite the king. And I, I want him to accept the showdown. You know, me and all of... Um, his Nivier Baal all the uh, prophets of Baal he should call all of Amisrael to come join we'll do a huge gathering on Har Carmel and we'll settle this once and for all we'll get to see who the true God is whether it's you know Hashem or as you know you say uh, the the Baal you know the the idol worship of, of Baal and uh, Ahab agrees and he calls for the entire, um uh to come unto Har Carmel and he gathers his four hundred and fifty prophets um and they're all standing in you know har karmel and and the showdown basically is you guys perform a korban to your gods to your Baal, and if it is accepted, so then we'll know that there are true gods, and if it doesn't work, I'll do my korban and we'll see if Hashem accepts it, and if Hashem accepts, we'll know that Hashem is God, so they agree. And the prophets come and they start doing all their, you know, huyawayas. They're doing all their uh, idol worship and things are going really uh, not well for them. Nothing nothing is happening. They're, you know, hitting the drums. They're doing the dances. They're doing all the things that are, you know, in their repertoire of knowing how to serve the, the idols. And there's complete silence. And Eliyahu is almost sitting on the corner, you know, crossing his arms, thinking to himself, come on, guys, just scream a little louder. Do things a little bit differently. Maybe your God went to the bathroom. Maybe he's sleeping. He's making fun of them. He's using humor to kind of tell them, you know, how, how foolish you, you've all become. And eventually nothing happens. They they try everything and anything and nothing, nothing comes there. There's no acceptance of their korban. So Eliyahu now faces the people and he tells the people, you know, I want you guys to recognize this is a huge moment. He sets up, you know, 12 stones to remind them of their past, of being 12 tribes. And he says, this korban that I'm about to sacrifice for the sake of God, you're going to see that Hashem is true and Hashem is the real God. And everyone is holding their breath. They're, they're waiting to see what happens. And all of a sudden, he, he he says a prayer, listen to me, accept my, my korban. And this huge, fire from the heavens comes down and consumes the entire korban consumes the rocks consumes the the sticks that were placed consumes the dust nothing is left everything is fully consumed and uh, the people are completely stunned right and they scream out hashem hu alokim hashem hu you know the people have seen the light this great revelation has taken place um, and you finish the parak with like so much drama so much excitement and, and, you you know, you're flipping to the next Perek, Perek and you're excited to see that the people are going to do tshuva, that the people are going to turn to Eliyahu, and the people are going to come back to God. And it's the exact opposite. As you turn to Perek Yutet, Perek Yetet starts off by telling us that, um, you know, word gets back to Izevel, what happened in Har Carmel You know, her husband says, hey, honey, sweetie, you, you can't believe, but we really got uh, shown up by uh, Eliyahu. We had the showdown. It was so embarrassing. Our korban wasn't accepted, and Eliyahu was. All the people are so inspired. You know, say Hashem hu Kim. and he's devil's furious, and he's and she's and she puts out a death warrant for Eliyahu's life, and says, "I'm going after you. I'm going to kill you tomorrow. Right? You your your day your your day is numbered. That's it for you, Eliyahu. We've had enough of you." And they gain the support of the people, meaning the people aren't protecting Eliyahu, the people aren't rallying against the king and queen, even the king and queen aren't changed. And Eliyahu is completely he's completely stunned. He's like, How how else am I supposed to inspire? How else am I supposed to um do this? And you know, how am I supposed to get the people to come to come around? And um, and you know, he's obviously scared for his life and he has to run. Um, so he's you know, originally located in the north of the country, Har HaKarmel, he goes all the way down to Be'er Sheva, down south, um, and ultimately he enters um, the desert, and he feels really disappointed, and he feels uh, completely uh, completely lost. Um, he's so depressed, he asks for his life to be taken, he stops eating, uh, he's totally given up. And uh, where I want to come in is Malachim uh, um, Aleph, Perak Yotet, um, Pasak Yud, basically Eliyahu now is in the desert and uh, Amalah or this revelation uh comes about, he goes into a cave and they ask Eliyahu, you know, what are you doing here? What are you uh what are you uh doing? What are you trying to accomplish by coming out all the way here? Like, what what's wrong with you, Eliyahu? And this is what what I want to bring in. So Pasak Yud says, Vayomar Kano Hashem, I am a zealous, jealous prophet for God, right? I'm here to represent Hashem and and everything that He is. Ki azvu because Bnei Israel they've completely gone against um, the Brit of uh, of Hashem. Um, they've not only gone against Hashem at Harsu at Hargu They've killed their prophets. They've destroyed any type of worship of God. The Mizbechot are all, all destroyed. But I'm here alone, God. Just me standing here alone in my camp. No one else is on my side. No one believes in what I believe. The people have completely lost it. They've gone away. So they're out to kill me. They're out to get me. And Hashem basically says to Eliyahu, I want you to go out. Uh, We know from the parak that he's standing on Har Chorev, which is also known to be uh, Har Sinai, where we receive, receive the Torah. And in a way, Eliyahu is about to get his revelation. Uh, mm-hmm. V'hinei Hashem over. Hashem passes in front of uh, Eliyahu, so to speak, Um, and the following happens for him. Ruach gedola, there's a massive wind that comes over him. Chazak, Mifarei, Karim, right? There's a... Uh, there's this you know crazy wind that comes and passes through through the mountains, Salim, um, Li Hashem, Hashem. But in this massive wind that passes and has the ability to move mountains and move things, right? That's not where Hashem is found. Rash. After the Ruach passes and Hashem is not found in that Ruach, there's a massive noise or earthquake. Things are trembling. The noise is so loud but the Pasuk sell, tells us Lo hashem but in that noise god is not found and then it says harash ish so after all that noise and rumbling and earthquake then you have fire you have this massive fire that breaks out Lo hashem but hashem is not found in that fire and so all these massive, huge, almost sensory overload experiences, wind, noise, shaking, fire, all of these things, God is not found in any of them. And the Pasa concludes, Vachar ha'esh, hold mamadaka. That after the fire came this uh, small, steady, or still voice. And in that small, steady, still voice, that's where Hashem um, is found. And it's a... Magnificent piece of of Navi here that I think has such a, an important message uh, for educators and even for individuals, even if they're not involved in education, which is that Eliyahu Navi, you know, did the impossible. He he proved that God exists. You know, he he called everyone else who believed in other things and believed in other gods, look to see what I believe in and let me prove that I'm right. And he was proven right. He said, you know, the Korban is gonna be accepted by God if God exists and boom, the Korban is existed. It almost left no uh, doubt in people's minds that Hashem exists. And yet after such a miraculous, unbelievable, inspiring moment, the people's inspiration, it, it fizzled out within moments. Um, and I think what's interesting about this piece is that Eliyahu doesn't know what to do with himself. He says, I I, I got, you know, teacher of the year. I, I taught the people about God and how God is in this world. And yet the people were inspired for those moments, but it didn't stick. It didn't last. And almost Hashem had to say to Eliyahu, it's true that inspiration can change people. Inspiration can get people excited about certain things. But ultimately, where is it that you can find God? And where is it that you can find God that's going to stick with you and stay with you? So he shows him all this also amazing, magnificent, miraculous wind and noise and fire. But God says it's all not that. He says it's about the cold mamadaka. It's about those very still, steady, consistent, small moments that's where you can find me. That's where God is. And, and what I think Eliyahu teaches us is that in order to be an effective educator, to be an effective learner, yes, it's very easy to want to go for the big inspiring moments to, you know, have the charismatic uh, and unbelievable, uh, you know, presentations that blow everyone, you know, out of the water. But yet, Eliyahu has to learn the lesson that in the steady and consistent experiences of life, it's like those small moments that you find God that that are the moments that stick with you and the moments that ultimately push you to have God in your life, you know, at all moments. And, um, you know, you think about the fact that Eliyahu is having this revelation on Har Horev, it reminds us of Har Sinai. And you know, we think about the fact that at Har Sinai we received the Torah really twice. On the first time, also loud noises, loud, you know, um, thunderous shofars blowing, and you had smoke and you had fire, and the people were in complete awe of what was going on, screaming out Ah seven "Ishma." But only within a few moments after they received the Torah, and something went wrong, and the challenges were presented to the people, Moshe didn't come down at the calculated time that they thought he should come down, they bowed down to a, to an eagle. they bowed down to a cow thinking, you know, we're going to replace God or replace the envoy of Moshe. And so, you know, the inspiration of what Harsinai had only lasted those few moments. It was only when we got the Torah the second time around, when we got the Luchos on Yom Hakipurim, when the whole ceremony was so... Um, humble, and it was so less um, magnificent than the first time, that's when Torah really, really lasted. Um, and, you know, there's something very beautiful about that, that there's this idea that it's really in this steady and consistentness um, that, you know, that that it, it, you know, it, it inspires um, for the future. Uh, there was an article written about this very, you know, piece of nach uh, by Rabbi Norman uh, Lamb, Aleva Shalom, And uh, he talks about how, you know, Harsinai and this idea was, you know, was unbelievable, um, you know, dramatic experience that Bnei Israel had. uh, But ultimately, it was understanding that Torah learning really is something that's soft. It's an ongoing labor. Um, You know, it's ordinary Jews learn that Torah study, you know, it just has to be observed on the uh, small meticulous level in their own lives. Um, and it's and it's something that you know is is very personal, and you know he mentions that Eliyahu Na'avi had the same lesson taught to him in Har Carmel, um, and that he had to learn that the the cold mama Dakao is really how to penetrate the soul of the people. He says in the still steady quiet simple just regular labor of character building and living honorably and honestly and perceiving the will of God in the prosaic daily life right? That, that is the ultimate worship of God. Um, and uh, I come back to this piece again and again and again for many, for many different reasons. One is that uh, this piece reminds me of the incredible impact that many of my teachers have had on me. Um, I definitely have been inspired by the big Shabbatones and charismatic speakers and amazing crafted videos um, but I think to myself, like those inspirational moments last only so long, like who and what are the moments that have inspired me, you know, throughout my entire life. And it's been like either those teachers who've been there for me, uh, on a mundane level who just, you know, send a text to check in when things are, you know, normal and not, you know, not my whole life isn't turned upside down, but it's, it's just those constant highs and hellos and how are you's and, and teachings of Torah, not in the big moments, but just in the daily routine, uh, it's the consistency of my commitments and it's in the consistency of the people in my life who inspire me to be better. And it really teaches me to find God in moments and not in these inspirational, um, gigantic experiences. You know, it could be uh, just buying a cup of coffee, you could find God, or, you know, by uh, by taking a walk that you can find God Um, And that's something that is so crucial to me as an individual, but also as an educator um, to, yes, get involved with the creative programming of how to inspire the masses. Um, But on the day to day, how am I representing the Torah and how am I connecting with my students to make them appreciate the cold mamadaka, um, you know, to to appreciate the mundane, the still, the steady um, and the just ordinary day um, life that ultimately inspires us to connect to Hashem in, in the greatest way possible. So, um, that's the second piece that, you know, I, I constantly think about and, and just think about how, you know, all moments of life now are turned into moments of connection. Um, you know, and that, you know, the big moments kind of re-energize us and get us excited, but it's those cold mama dakas that, uh, that move us to, uh, to the greatest uh, achievements, I think, of of our lives. And so I, I think about that piece of Torah all the time.
0: Amazing. So should we go into your third piece? Of
1: course, yeah. it comes from Devarim on the mitzvah of a king to um, have a Sefer Torah um, on him at all times. And we know that he, has to, he has to write two Sefer Torah, one, one for the Levim and the Kohanim, and the other um, he has to keep on him at all times. And um, he's supposed to read from it all the days of his life um, in order to keep, keep the Torah and follow in the ways of uh, mitzvot. And uh, this is a little bit of a Hasidic Shiv work from uh, the Nativo Chalom, the Slonema Rebbe. Um, it's Nativo Chalom, Amud uh, Kuf, Kuf, Yud Alef, uh, sorry, Kuf Yud Ayin. And he talks about how it really is a beautiful idea that the king of Am el um, has to have a Torah. And, you know, very oftentimes we uh, reason or we we come to learn that why would he have to do such a thing? Um, and it kind of makes sense. So this way he's constantly reminded of his obligations to Hashem, his obligations to the people, his obligations to mitzvos. Um, And uh, again, it serves as a reminder for him to stay true to the path. Uh, but the Nativo Shalom goes one step further. And he says the following. He says that... Um, it's really a fascinating thing that he has to carry this safer Torah around with him. Perhaps for this reason, that just like when you learn the Torah, you recognize that there are so many different ways of interpreting the Torah. Right, you open up a Mikro Gadola, you have so many Mefarshim, you have so many Pirushim on. You know, the words itself, uh, that there's 70 ways to interpret the Torah. And there's probably even more. So, you know, you think about it through a rational lens, a Hasidic lens, um, you know, a a uh, Diktok, a grammar lens. There's so many different ways. Um, and ultimately, we know that we appreciate the Torah because of its diversity and its dynamic, you know, way of uh, of reaching out to us. And says the Nativo Shalom, really what the king is meant to understand from this is just like the Torah has so many different ways of interpretation and so many different ways of looking at it, that his subjects, meaning the people that he's leading and the people of Am Yisrael... Represents the same thing uh, that the 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 Torah is supposed to remind him that when he looks at his nation, he's not just looking at one dimension, one standard nation. He's looking at a diverse group of people, people who have different ways of looking at things, different ways of thinking about things, different ways of expressing themselves, of serving God, different roles, different you know. And he's supposed to look at all of this and appreciate every single one that the individual represents his own world and when you look at the nation they're made up of so many varying different individuals uh, that have so many different um, you know things to offer and ultimately his job as the king is to be the conductor of a masterful symphony you know to call upon Jews you know to play this part and that part and to bring it all together he's supposed to see people for who they are and, and the diversity in which they they bring um, and this piece I love tremendously because it just celebrates uh, you know what I think Amistral um, is so magnificent that we're so diverse. We have so many different ways of looking,, um, you know, at you know, at at anything in life. And uh, it kind of always reminds me that you know, the way that we should interact with people, uh, is the way of appreciating what's their individual perush, what's their individual way of looking at, at the world and how do we celebrate it and how do we bring it into the grand symphony of Am Yisrael. Um, and again, I don't always uh, see eye to eye. I don't always appreciate that that same tune that, you know, someone else might, might bring that, you know, is not mine, um, but I can appreciate and I can recognize how when brought on with something else or brought on, with a varying different opinion. It, it almost sounds like a harmony. It sounds uh, beautiful and and it's and it has its place. Um, it reminds me to celebrate diversity, to celebrate what Am Yisrael is truly all about. Uh, and I love this piece that the Melech, the king, the leader of, of, of us has to recognize that we're a diverse nation.
0: Absolutely. Great closing message. And thank you so much for coming on today and sharing such incredible Torah with us.
1: No problem. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisra. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download or subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>